Thank you, Mita, for your prayer. And uh, before we begin the message, I would just like to add uh, a word uh, to that prayer. So if you'll bow your heads with me, if you feel comfortable extending your hands as a sign of receptivity to the word, I encourage you to do that. So Father, uh, as we open your word right now, uh, we pray that um, the bread of life would come to each of us and nourish us and fill us. I pray, Father, that this word would speak into the hearts of each listener. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would encourage us and bless us and help us to understand how deep and wide your love is for your children. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to believe and understand that you have the power to raise men and women from the dead. And I pray, Lord, that that would be a reality today for each and every one of us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, uh, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, uh, there was an article written by a woman by the name of Catherine Kirsten. And the article was entitled, entitled More Religion Than Ever? Question mark. And that question was subtitled, Modern Faith Increasingly Drained of Content. And she wrote, according to a recent Harris poll, that 90% of Americans believe in God and prayer. Now, it's a God of their own understanding. Uh, it's a God that they believe in. It may not be the one true God, but 90% of Americans believe in a higher being, and they pray. 80% of Americans believe that they will stand before God someday and be accountable for their lives. 66% or two-thirds of Americans believe in Jesus Christ. They not maybe have faith in him, but they believe that he existed. And 86% of teenagers believe in God. That's pretty remarkable when you hear those statistics today, right? So uh, Kirsten goes on and says, we're very religious and very Christian. But one statistic startled her the most, and it was this. Only 23% of those who say they believe in God believes that their faith has anything to do with their lives. 77% of Americans, even if they believe in God, believe that there is absolutely no impact that their faith in God has on their lives. And so as a result of that, she asks a series of questions. If we are so religious, and if we are such a Christian nation, why does our culture seem to grow coarser every, every year? Why is there so much hatred in politics? Why is racism still rampant in our country? Why is there overwhelming materialism? Why is the fact that 35% of children are born with illegitimately outside of marriage? And why is it that 52% of marriages end in divorce? She says, why? This is what she concludes. Perhaps our religion is only skin deep because it has almost no effect on our lives, end quote. To that I say, ouch. To that I say, 
we are in serious trouble in our world. I mean, imagine, 77% of people who believe in God say, I believe in God, but he has absolutely no effect on my life whatsoever. So there's this um, powerful testimony in the book of James. James was the uh, brother of Jesus, and uh, he wrote this wonderful book. And, uh, well, some of us think it's wonderful. Uh, Martin Luther called it a right straw epistle. Uh, But uh, we know that it's inspired by God. And uh, here is what uh, James said in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24. I'll be reading from the NIV version, so you can follow along on the screen. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together in unison. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, the primary point that James is making here in our text is this. It's like James would be talking to you and me today. This is what he would say. If you want to experience it, then I call you to a living faith, a faith that is alive by the power of God, a faith that will be seen by how you live your life. Now, we have been on a search for it, and we've discovered that it is experienced in a passion for the presence of Jesus Christ. Not just about learning about him or talking about him or what we can expect from him, but a personal relationship, being vitally connected to Jesus. That's what, we ta- what uh, uh, Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you are vitally connected to the vine, the branch, the branch, guess what? That life is flowing from the vine to the branch. Guess what? You will bear fruit. And that's what James is talking about. This search that we've been on says that Jesus is the one that we need to know and love. Jesus declares, I am it. Be vitally connected to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and life. Jesus said, if you're searching for it, I am it. And then we learned a few weeks ago that uh, an important it trait is integrity, walking straight and standing tall. 
uh, keeping on a straight path, keeping on the path of God, not hiding in the shadows, no duplicity, no divided heart. And then last week we discovered another it trait, down-to-earth humility. And we looked at that wonderful passage in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to walk humbly with your God. And we took that apart last week, remember? To walk, to walk humbly, to walk humbly with God, to walk humbly with your God. As Jesus humbled himself by washing the feet of the disciples and ultimately going to the cross, he told his disciples, do you understand what I've just done for you? I want you to go and do the same for others. So we are called to serve humbly like Jesus, to bend a knee, to walk humbly before your God, to experience a passion for his presence, to live with sincere integrity, walking straight, standing tall, and to exhibit down-to-earth humility, to walk humbly with your God. So have you decided whether or not you have these it traits? Today is the glue that sticks it altogether. And that is spirit-filled faith. Spirit-filled faith. Not faith that has no effect on your life, like the article by Catherine Kirsten. Not faith that says, I believe, but so what? But it's a faith that has at its very source the resurrected Christ. A faith that changes the way you live, the way you think, the way you believe, the way you walk, the way you understand. A faith that is alive now and will be, listen, will be alive forever, for all eternity. Remember, we said a few weeks ago that if you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, look at what he did. See, a lot of people, a lot of theologians argue about what Jesus said. I really believe it's much simpler than that. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, look at what Jesus did. So in James chapter 2, James is talking about two types of faith. And we'll look at those today. Dead faith and living faith. And then here's the tricky part. He invites us to choose. Dead faith or living faith. So let's dig in. James 2.17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So let's look at that, that phrase, dead faith. What is that? Uh, it's faith that looks alive, but it's not. It's um, zombie faith, right, for you young people? Um, it's what I call Pharisee faith. Uh, in other words, do the list. On the outside, even though you might have dead men's bones on the inside, on the outside, do the list. Raise your hand and say yes. Pray the prayer. Go to church. Pray. Give. Don't kill anybody. Don't rob banks. Don't cheat on your wife. Do the list. And then when you do the list, you can just say, well, I'm covered. I've escaped hell. I mean, that's the ultimate fire insurance, right? All of this can be done without life inside. All of this can be done without having, excuse me, or exhibiting living faith. So that we mentioned earlier about John 15, the vine and the branches, this 
vital connection between the vine and the branches where Jesus' life, you might say his juice is flowing into us and that life that's flowing into us then bears fruit. But when you cut that branch off, initially when you cut that branch off and it still has some grapes hanging on it, you say that thing's alive, but it's not. It's dead. It appears to be alive, at least for the moment. It looks kind of like life, but it is not. So my um, grandparents, my, uh, my, my paternal grandparents, Grandma and Grandpa Cross, um, uh, lived in a, on a chicken farm in Spring Valley, California. And when I was a little boy, I used to love to go over there because... Um, uh, you know the phrase, phrase uh, chicken with its head cut off? Okay, I used to love to chase those chickens. So grandma showed me, I was like eight, nine years old. Grandma said, okay, I, I wanted to see how this all worked. So she said, okay, this is it. Now, are you okay with this? Okay, grandma, what have you said? And she basically would wring the chicken's neck, pull it off, and then toss the chicken to the side, right? Well, you know what happened. That chicken kept running around, chicken with its head cut off. And I used to chase it. What I discovered was I was really chasing a dead thing. I thought it was alive. It appeared to be alive. It kind of showed that it was alive, but it was dead. Sometimes we walk around like zombie Christians. We do the things, we do the list, we have the appearance, we kind of look like we're still connected to the vine, but we're not. We still, like the Pharisees, would stand in the temple and raise their arms and have these flowery prayers and give large sums of money, sums of money and do all of these things, and it was all done on the outside. It was Pharisee faith. It was zombie faith. It was dead faith. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. You are like, talking to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. So uh, Sherry and I moved here in June of 2000. And I started my ministry at Hope Covenant Church in the strip mall in July of 2000. Those first eight months, we lived with her parents down in Sun Lakes, the very house that we live in now, and uh, while our house was being built in Chandler. And uh, so uh, the first Christmas, uh, mom's never been, Sherry's mom's never been a big Christmas person, I mean, for the decorations. She had a little Weasley, Charlie Brown tree, and that was it. But we, let me put it this way, she really loves Christmas. And we lived for 15 years in Denver, Colorado, and Roseville, Minnesota. In those 15 years, we got a lot of really cool trees. I mean, this is where you go out to the tree farm, and there is still snow on the branches, right? Right, Mita? Right? And it's just beautiful and heavy laden with snow and fresh, and you can smell it, and it's green. So those are the kind of trees we were used to. So we move into our new house in March of 2001, and then by Christmas, Sherry's ready to do Christmas right. Our new house, we've got a perfect place for the tree, so we go out and we buy a tree. We didn't find out later to those trees were cut down in August in Oregon, right? But, so, but we put our tree up, and here's the deal. We would put tinsel on it, and we'd put decorations, and we'd put you know, spruce smell sprayed on it, and flock it, and we'd do all of these things. But every time you walked by it, there were thousands of little needles on the floor. It was dead. And no matter how many times I vacuumed up the needles, it remained dead. I've seen many walking 
Christmas trees. Walk around with the appearance of life, but leaving a trail of dead needles. Uh, some of you that are into these kind of movies, back in the 70s, uh, it started with A Night of the Living Dead, a kind of a 70s cult horror film. And that's zombies. That's, uh, zombies were great because they'd kind of walk around and say, you know, I am alive, I'm alive, I have faith, I have faith. But they were dead. And so many Christians, so many Christians, not disciples, walk around the same way. Now, there, there are three identifying characteristics of dead faith. The first one is this. Empty confession. You might want to write this down. Empty confession. One who claims faith, yet their life is void of that which faith produces, which is the fruit of the Spirit, right? From Galatians. Some have claimed that this, there's this disagreement or this argument between Paul and James. Paul says, faith alone justifies Martin Luther came along and said, sole fides, faith alone, right? That's why he called James the right straw epistle. James comes along and says, no, faith without works is dead. Now, these are not conflicting ideas. It's simply the horse and the cart. Faith is the horse. Faith drives it. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is what starts it. The cart is that beautiful life of fruitfulness and love and mercy that we exhibit to other people that is drawn behind our living faith. See, what was really happening there was that, um, uh, because there's no conflict between James and Paul, they were basically defending the truth from different enemies. Paul was defending against legalism. Uh, I can please God by my effort. If I work hard enough, I do enough right things, God will be okay with me, and I'll pu he'll punch my ticket to heaven. That was what the Pharisees' faith was like. You can't be justified by faith alone, but, never, but always justified by works. That was Paul. And then James comes along and he says, well, I'm defending against libertinism. I've done the list, I've walked the aisle, it doesn't matter how I live. James says that dead faith, living faith, always produces fruit. So here's one way to put it. Doing good deeds does not lead to faith. But faith always leads to good deeds. So there's no conflict between Paul and James, but a melding together of understanding. So in other words, when you put them together, you're saying something like this. What you do is a far clearer indicator, a far more accurate and honest indicator of what you believe than what you say. Okay, that's what I said before about Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, look at what Jesus did. Now, a couple weeks ago, I asked you to do a secret act of love. Okay, so right now, wherever you are in the rooms at home, I want you to turn to somebody and tell them what that secret act of love was. Okay, let's do that right now. No, you can't do that because then it's not a secret act of love. This is what we're talking about. Dead faith always wants to be recognized. 
Okay, look what I did. God, are you seeing this? Am, am I good enough? Did I give enough? Uh, did I get baptized often enough? Do I go to church enough? Do I read my Bible enough? That's always that dead faith, always trying to somehow find God in all of that. But here's what the Lord said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And this is, this is powerful, okay? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is a gift from God. Your faith to believe in Jesus is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. People say, Lord, Lord, I'm going to church, I'm going to church. Remember our study in Jeremiah? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, everybody's crying out, but there's deadness on the inside. It's not real. Watch me. I'm religious. Well, you know what? Even the demons can say, Lord, Lord, James says. That's not the answer. Words without works is an empty confession. So let me give you an example, which you all maybe, or most of you will understand, and that's about marriage. So marriage is about a confession, um, a ring and a party, right? You put a ring on her finger, you stand before the pastor, the priest, uh, you get blessed, and then you go to the party. But during that moment when you're saying vows, you're saying things like, I promise to do this to love you and cherish you for the rest of my life. And I promise that I'll never walk away from you. And and you're making all these confessions and all these promises. So many times, that is dead faith. See, I'll I'll tell you why. See, getting married is not just about, like I said, a ring and a party. Um, You're not ready for marriage by getting married, right? So so it's like, okay, football is starting today, which is... You know, thank you, Lord. And uh, so, uh, so football starting to get, and uh, that's awesome. And but uh, you know, a good football team, you don't just say, okay, let's gather gather some guys in here, guys. You know, pick them up from the street, bring them all in. Okay, come on. Do you guys want to play football? Yes, we do. We want to play football. Are you pumped up? Are you fired? Yes, we're fired up. Okay, let's go out and play, uh, you know, the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. That even sounds weird. Okay, let's go out and play. They would get crushed. Why? Because it's not just about declaring what you're going to do. You've got to practice and practice and practice and practice. That's what happens in marriage. People forget to practice. They forget to prepare. They forget to daily say, honey, I adore you. I will serve you. I will do whatever I can to make your life better. So let me give you a magic bullet, okay? Those of you who are married or those of you who are contemplating marriage, here's a magic bullet. 52% of all marriages end in divorce. 52%. Let me change change that statistic to where 20% of people get a divorce. Here's what Harris Poll says. If you want to have an 80% assurance of staying married for your whole life, you need to do three things. Practice, 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 right? Do three things. Those three things are as follows. You need to pray together every day. You need to worship together every week. And you need to serve together. If you and your spouse, or you and your girlfriend, your fiance, if you are doing those three things, there is a much higher, likelier chance that your marriage is going to be fruitful 
and it will be beautiful and wonderful like Sherry and I have had for 50 years. Practice, practice, practice. You live it out. You don't just say, I declare. Okay, Jesus, I love you. Okay, you don't just do, okay, how are you going to live your life? How are you going to walk in the light? How are you going to walk in favor with Jesus? That's what James is talking about. So that's an empty confession. Now, a second indicator of dead faith is false compassion. James 2, 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? That is a really good question, isn't it? So there's this legend about a Saxon queen about a thousand years ago. So she went to the theater to watch uh, this wonderful play, and it was moving, and she had tears, and there was pathos, and it was beautiful, and the singing and the acting was wonderful, and she had tears, and she felt all of this warmth and joy and compassion. But when the play was over, she went outside, and she found that her footman on her carriage had frozen to death. She shed not a tear. She simply asked one question, how am I supposed to get home? False compassion. Now we know probably the greatest story about that is the story of the Good Samaritan. So uh, there was a man that was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and uh, he was set upon by robbers, beaten nearly to death. They probably intended to kill him, leave him naked by the side of the road, took all of his possessions. And a little while later, along comes a Pharisee with Pharisee faith. Oh, it looks good. And he dressed good. And he had wealth. And he had important things to do. Things that he needed to do. Ministry things that he needed to do. He went to the other side of the road and passed the man by. A little while later, a Levite, which was like an an associate pastor in one of the temples. And a Levite came along. Same thing. I'm important. I've got things to do. The guy's probably dead, although I don't want to go near him because a Jewish man is not supposed to be near a dead person. So I'm just going to leave him there. I've got things to do. The third person that came along was a Samaritan from Samaria. Samaria was always fighting with Israel, so they were enemies. And whenever uh, Samaria, Samaria um, would uh, you know, get uh, prisoners from Israel, they would intermarry. And so a lot of them were half-breeds. And they were completely hated by the Jews. And so the Samaritan comes along and uh, he sees that the man's in trouble. He sees that he's alive. He takes him to an inn nearby. He pays for his health care. Uh, that's where he had free health care. And he pays for his health care. And uh, the man was taken care of. And Jesus asked the question, who is my neighbor? Who is the one who loves like I do? It's the one who literally lives compassion, not just shows false compassion, lives compassion, feels it deeply in their heart and does something about it. Now the third identifying characteristic of dead faith after false compassion is shallow conviction. Shallow conviction. There's a wonderful story in Mark chapter 2 and many of you know the story. Jesus was in this home, it was kind of an open home uh, so there was hundreds of people around gathered outside. And these, these four men had a friend who was um, uh, crippled. 
and they wanted Jesus to heal him. And there's no way they could get through the crowd. So you know the story. They dug a hole in the roof and had four uh, ropes and they tied one to each corner of this pallet or this mat, lowered the guy down in front of Jesus and said, Jesus, heal this guy. And it's remarkable, the story. And, but, but let me tell you about how we got to that place. We got to that place by four men that had a deep conviction. That if I get my friend in front of Jesus, he's going to be healed. A deep conviction. Something in them that said, okay, this is going to cost me money because I'm going to have to repair the roof. This is, people are going to laugh at me. They're going to mock me. So I have to live with that. People are not understand what we're, going to, what we're doing, but the conviction in their heart was so deep that their friend could be healed by Jesus. They did everything they could. Jesus, the Bible says in that text in Mark 2, Jesus, what? Saw their faith. He didn't just feel it. He just didn't recognize it. Jesus saw their faith, this deep conviction. Here's the point. Zombie faith, Pharisee faith, is empty faith. And it's dead faith. No life comes out of it. You can fool a man. You can say, look at me, I'm religious. The temple of the Lord. God bless America. You can say all of those things. But you cannot fool God. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now hear this. There is only one cure for death. It's not... I'm going to try really hard to be alive. It's not, I'm going to be cryogenically preserved. It's not, I'm going to cheat death. I'm going to ignore death. I'm going to reject the notion of death. But there it is. It's still dead. The only cure for death is resurrection. By the power of the only one who had victory over death. Jesus came not to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And this morning you can experience that. But before we close, I want to share with you about living faith. Living faith. Living faith raises you from the dead. It makes you alive. It's saying yes to God. I'll do it your way. I'll do anything you want me to do. It's being a disciple of Jesus Christ, saying yes to whatever God asks you to do. When we come to God broken and empty and hopeless and dead, he says, I have had victory over death, and I can have victory over your death. In Scripture, saving faith is living faith. It is that faith that makes you alive. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer that I live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. That's the living faith. It's not just faith saying, I believe, but it's Jesus living in you. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That faith saves. That faith redeems. That faith destroys sin. That faith brings life. It is living faith, and it always produces living things. Living faith always produces living things. It always produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of that, it produces living things. But pastor, my faith isn't very good. God says, I, I can work with that. 
but, but I have weak faith. Like Thomas said, I, I believe, help me with my unbelief. God says, yes. Oh, but Lord, I, I have such little faith, just a tiny bit of faith. I'm not sure what I believe. I just have a little, the Bible says that faith like a mustard seed, which was then known as the smallest seed there is, faith as a mustard seed is enough faith. Oh, but, but Lord, I, I have wounded faith. I was abused as a child, gone through an ugly divorce, death of a loved one. God says, I am the God who heals. I will stand beside you. I will be with you. And some of you might say, well, I have stumbling faith. Oh, we all have that, don't we? I have stumbling faith. Like Peter walking on the water stumbled when he looked at the storm and fell into the water. In other words, not faith in what you can do, but faith in what he has done. Now, just a little thing to remember. Religion, this is the spelling lesson for those of you who are teachers. Religion is spelled D-O. Being a disciple is spelled D-O-N-E. What we can't do for ourselves, Christ has done for us. And when we experience that life in us, that is living faith. He can raise you from the dead. It's not a matter of being good enough or living enough in the way, right way. The Bible says that God accepts you and values you and loves you wherever you are in your faith. Don't mistake your weak faith for dead faith. Uh, there's, uh, in Minnesota, every winter, all the trees look absolutely dead. <laughs> and some of them are. And some of them are dead. They just have no leaves, right? And it's winter and it's cold. The only way you're going to know of all those trees that look dead in the forest, the only way you're going to know which ones are alive is come spring when they start to bear fruit, when they start to show their leaves, when they start to show their life. Leaves reveal that they are alive. Leaves don't bring life. That's works. They simply reveal or manifest, manifest the fact that they are alive. The divine principle of life is within you, Jesus Christ. Here's the way John Calvin said it. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. I love that. Let me say it again. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. So let me ask you a question. How do you know you have living faith? Well, let me just give you a few simple things to remember. The first thing is when you feel, when you do something wrong, and we all know when we do something wrong, um, do you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit that, you know what, that's just not right. That's not the way Jesus would live his life. That's not the way I want to live. And so you feel that conviction of sin. The other thing is that in, in Romans it says that the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. The spirit alive within you bears witness that you are a child of God. And the third thing is the thing that I've been talking about. And that's just this, that your, your life is going to bear fruit. Your life is going to bear fruit. So when I was um, 16 years old, I went forward at a, youth, at a Youth for Christ rally, and I gave my heart to Jesus. Now, I'd always been a good kid. I was raised in a strong Christian home. 
I'd probably, like Larry the sad boy, I probably said yes to Jesus a thousand times. But this is the moment that I felt like, okay, I'm accepting Jesus. I'm receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm not being grandparented in. <laughs> God doesn't have grandchildren. So I know this is not just my parents' faith. This is me saying yes to Jesus. And I know that that was real because I started feeling convicted when I would sin. I knew that the Spirit of God was alive in me. And even as a youngster, I could see some of that fruit starting to be yielded in my life. 56 years later, Jesus is still the sweetest name I know. The Spirit of God is alive within me. That's living faith. Yeah, sometimes I'm flopping on the floor like a mackerel, I know. Sometimes my faith is wounded like when our son Tyler was killed. Sometimes I have very little faith and very weak faith, but my love for the church, my love for God, my love for my family, the fruit that God has born in my life, all of these things say that this faith in me is a living faith. So that's my question for you. Is your faith alive? Is the spirit of Jesus alive within your soul? That's the question each of us needs to answer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? So Father, um, right now, I just uh, feel a sense in my spirit that I need to grant, give an invitation to people to say yes to you. I know there's a lot of um, zombie people out there, a lot of Pharisee Christians that are going through the motions, doing the list, trying to look as good as they possibly can, but they've never by faith received that gift of Jesus Christ by his spirit that would absolutely change their life and transform them by the, transform them by the spirit of God. So Father, if there are those that are listening today that have never invited Jesus to be their Lord and Savior forever, to come into your life, I just would invite you to say this prayer along with me. Not, not out loud, but just in the quietness of your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I think that my faith is pretty dead. And I want to experience that living faith. I, want, I, I don't have a lot of faith, just maybe a mustard seed's worth. My faith has been wounded. I, I've, I've stumbled many times, but, but by faith, I say yes to God and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior to come into my life and to grant me that life everlasting. And I do pray this in his precious name. With your head still bowed and your eyes closed, I would say, God bless you for saying that prayer. I pray that you would just really lean into the Spirit of God and read your Bible and talk to someone about how you can grow in your faith. But Lord, I also sense that there's others that are just really struggling. Maybe their faith truly is wounded. Maybe their faith is very, very weak. Maybe they, they don't know what to do or how to live. And I would pray, Father, that you would grant to them that living, breathing spirit that is within them and assure them of your deep love for them, that you will never leave them or forsake them. And I pray, Lord, that they would just receive this gift of your presence right now. 
living faith to be healed by the power of God. And I do pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.